Hey everyone, uh, I'm hoping that I sound at least vaguely like myself here. I've just been getting over a cold, so uh, maybe I'm going to sound clogged up a little, uh, but I think we'll get through this. Anyway, so in this episode, I want to look at this question that I'm sure you've asked yourself from time to time. Is religion violent? Recent events make this question particularly potent, uh, but a closer look reveals that the question itself, as simple as it appears, has problems of its own. But before I get to pointing out these problems, I'll begin with the obvious. These days, the phrase religious violence is commonplace, which is about the same as saying that it's really not difficult to see the link between religion and violence as natural. But naturalization, which is this acceptance of norms as if they are normal, is at the center of all ideology. When you don't question something like the link between religion and violence, you can be pretty sure that you are firmly in the grip of ideology. Anyway, that's exactly what has happened, I think, in the way that religion and violence are often grouped. I mean, the phrase religious violence even has its own Wikipedia page, that's how pervasive so-called religious violence seems to be. And of course, you don't get a Wikipedia page for secular violence, which may turn out to be an issue, uh, and I'll get to that later. The idea of religious violence, at least as far as the ideology goes, is very simple. It's the idea that the fact that people defend their supposedly irrational beliefs in transcendence or God or dogmas will, so the story goes, produce a kind of fervor that will manifest itself first as hatred and then as outright murderous rage. So what may look like all telly tubbies and daffodils and, and nice fluffy things is actually a matter of knives and guns and Justin Bieber's mu music. As the story goes, religion is the starting point in an escalation towards extremes. It may look sedate, but it soon turns into intolerance, bigotry, hatred, rage, and ultimately produces violence, killing, and murder. The point is, many people think that religion itself must be the problem. The famous new atheist Sam Harris, for example, is quick to point out that his major issue with religion is that it provides false certainty and this false certainty is, for him at least, directly linked to intolerance. And the outcome of intolerance can't be good, can it? Which is fair, I suppose, except that it seems to me that it's precisely Sam Harris's irreligion that has produced a great deal of false certainty and intolerance in him. And that's just an aside. Uh, so, yes, the connection between religion and violence is so commonplace these days that very few people stop to question it. Some evidence of this can be seen in the way that many people have responded to the recent tragic mass shooting in Orlando. Or, if you want to look at other cases, think about the way that many people, I mean secularists, responded after the attacks in Belgium, France, East Africa, London, New York, and so on. It's the response that we shouldn't be surprised this is what's to be expected of religious loons. I'm sure, especially in recent days, that you, like me, have been bombarded by a whole slew of very weak arguments, very much lacking in nuance. In the process, boundaries get reaffirmed. There's us, and then there's them, or those people. 
And of course, boundary making is a, a really natural human act. Um, it's the result of anger, which is the emotion that helps us to establish our boundaries in general. But what happens if that anger is put in the wrong place? The result, as I see it, is that the anger puts the boundary in such a way that it makes simple things out of things that really aren't that simple. So before I go any further, I need to say just this. Tyranny begins with the end of nuance. It's an important idea. Tyranny begins with the end of nuance. I could go into thousands of examples, I suppose, but I'll just name one from the last century. Hitler's propaganda machine. Hitler knew, probably because he was reading the, the work of Gustav Le Bon, that keeping communication simple and clear was essential to mobilizing people's inner biases towards terrible aims. Hitler understood that when you're speaking to a crowd and you want the crowd to move in one direction, nuance is not going to work. Nuance adds hesitation and doubts and complexity. It destroys our ability to simplistically scapegoat others. Nuance takes time. It slows the pace. It engages reason rather than pure unbridled emotion. Hitler knew this, so he threw nuance out of the window. Even reading his really awful book, Mein Kampf, will show you this. Hitler wasn't interested in fact-checking himself or testing his prejudices. And this is exactly where tyranny was born. So there you have it. Tyranny begins when nuance ends. Overthinking may be one of the causes of depression, I've heard, but I can definitely confirm that underthinking is still one of the top causes of stupidity. So how about we add some nuance to this question of whether religion causes violence? I said that the question itself was problematic, and here is why. It's that little word religion in the question. It's treated as a stable, uncomplicated category, and, well, it really just isn't. The amazing political theologian William Kavanagh, who was introduced to me by my friend Roberto, says this brilliant thing in his book, The Myth of Religious Violence. This is right at the start of um, his book. He says that the myth of religious violence is the idea that religion is a trans-historical and trans-cultural feature of human life, essentially distinct from secular features such as politics and economics, which has a particularly dangerous inclination to promote violence. I know that's a mouthful and I'm going to unpack it shortly, but first I need to mention Kavanagh's idea that the implication of this myth is that religion must therefore be tamed by restricting its access to public power. The secular nation-state then appears as natural, corresponding to a universal and timeless truth about the inherent dangers of religion. So let me unpack these ideas very quickly. To begin with, when Kavanagh says that religion is not trans-historical, he's pointing out the obvious fact that religion changes over time. There is no trans-historical essence of religion. Over time, what we end up referring to as religion changes. So, for instance, you might call ancient pagan child sacrifice religion or religious expression, but then you might also refer to him singing in St. Paul's Cathedral in London as religion. And the two things, in case you haven't noticed, and I'm sure you have, are not even remotely the same. And yet, the word religion is applied to both. 
Then when Kavanagh says that religion is not transcultural, he means that even across different cultures, what we call religion can be hugely varied. There is a world of difference, for instance, between an introverted Anglican community and the emotional frenzy of a particularly rowdy, charismatic megachurch crowd. And yet both are referred to as somehow being part of Christianity, as a so-called religion. So, of course, maybe some of the language is the same and some of the ideas will sound familiar, but even so, it's really difficult to fix such wild differences down to that one word. If you pick religions apart, you get a massive array of preferences, practices, processes, rituals, beliefs, and many other things. This applies, as I've suggested, to differences between religious groups like Christians, Muslims, and Buddhists, but it also applies to internal differences like the differences between Methodists, emergent churches, Catholics, and others. What we're dealing with then is difficult to pin to one stable categories, one simple word that we call religion. And if you really think about the array of so-called religious practices, it becomes very difficult to argue that certain more secular forms of mass participation are in any way genuinely different from certain expressions of supposed religious devotion. A modern worship service in a megachurch may be a religion, but How is that vastly different from a rock concert or the cheering in a sports stadium? And how is standing to sing a hymn significantly different, as a ritual that is, to standing to salute the flag and read the Pledge of Allegiance, or quote the Pledge of Allegiance? My point is that in all of these there is devotion, an object of attention, emotional catharsis, consumerism, group formation, identity affirmation, and a whole lot more. And these things could easily be be mistaken for religion. By the way, for want of a better word, I'm going to stick to using that word religion from here on out, even though it's such a problematic term. It's my way of highlighting, in a way, the, the ideology that singles out particular groups as being somehow separate from the daily grind of everyday, uh, I don't know, social participation. I know that there are subtleties here, and I'm not going to go into each of them, but my main point is this. If we ask the question of whether religion causes violence, we need to very quickly acknowledge that religion isn't one thing. There are themes and variations and cultural and historical factors that make the question very complicated. In fact, There's an argument to be made, and Kavanagh makes it really brilliantly, that isolating something like religion is done precisely to scapegoat it. If you can create a monolithic category called religion and then denounce it as violent, then anything that religions have to say about the violence of others or the state is easier to brush aside as the irrelevant ramblings of a bunch of barbarians. Reality is always more complicated. Scapegoating religion means that we fail to understand that every situation involves various factors that will produce tremendous conflict. Things like poverty, imperialism, discrimination, nationalism, shame, political motivations, pride, money, and a whole lot more. Because of the scapegoating of so-called religion, these other things are totally left out of the picture in a lot of media coverage. 
especially media coverage done on terrorist attacks or so-called terrorist attacks. I would say then, against this trend in the media, that thing, these things are vital for understanding violence. Context is everything. Nuance is impossible to do away with if we want to have a sensible view of things. Which is why, once we have finally ascertained which religion we're actually talking about, we then go ahead and try to figure out if that so-called religion preaches the sort of violence that we have found in the world. Specific religion, religious factions may indeed promote violence, but then we need to be very clear on how this happens. And this, it turns out, is not as easy as you would think. Because the major world religions do not promote violence. Maybe they have problematic texts or texts that have become problematic when handed to a bunch of theologically illiterate buffoons, but these texts never exist in isolation. They are always read through prejudices, and the prejudices of the main religious traditions turn out to be largely profoundly loving and generous-spirited. I know that that's a ludicrous generalization, but a few specifics could help on this issue. In a recent article, Kelly James Clark makes a vital point. I'm going to quote him at length. He says, It's easy to think that the Bosnian genocide of 40,000 Muslims was motivated by Christian commitment. The Muslim victims were killed by Christian Serbs. But these convenient monikers ignore a how shallow post-communist religious belief was and, more importantly, b such complex causes as class, land, ethnic identity, economic disenfranchisement, and nationalism. He goes on to say, It's also easy to think that members of ISIS and Al-Qaeda are motivated by religious belief, but blaming such behaviors on religion commits the fundamental attribution error. Attributing the cause of behavior to internal factors such as personality, characteristics or dispositions, while minimizing or ignoring external situational factors. That's the end of the quote. This is exactly what happened when Omar Mateen massacred those gay people in Orlando on the 12th of June. Mateen was assumed to be connected with ISIS. He actually created this impression and this made the media's job really easy. Clearly, they figured it was his religious affiliation that had made him into a violent, murderous bigot. He must have been a terrorist motivated by radical Islam. That was his flaw, many people thought. And it sufficed as an explanation, even though obviously that could not have been the whole story. Soon, though, it started to become apparent that Mateen had more than a few issues. He was abusive, he was racist, he was possibly mentally ill, and it's very likely that his rage was a matter of revenge. His family didn't think he was particularly religious at all. Even his allegiance with radical Islamofascists was questionable. He didn't know much about any of the organizations he aligned himself with. So here we have an interesting example of a man who was violent without having much of a backing in Islamic faith and who also didn't know very much about Islamofascism either. It's that first bit that interests me here. He didn't know much about Islam. He wasn't a devout Muslim at all, although he paid lip service to it from time to time, so his violence wasn't caused by what many people call religion. 
It was violent, certainly, and the tragedy it produced was immense. But the word religion was just thrown into the mix as a red herring. It makes for easy reporting, and it confirms every prejudice that exists in the American media about radical Islamists. But it doesn't deal with, com- with the complexities that would cause Omar Mateen to do what he did. Nuance was removed. Tyranny remains. Nevertheless, ISIS is still there, right? I mean, shouldn't we be looking at the fact that ISIS is still an example of how religion motivates violence? Even if Mateen didn't know much about ISIS, there's enough in the media for him to have been able to mimic the sort of horror that they inflict on the world all the time. And that horror does seem at first to be motivated by what is commonly called religion. That is, a religion, namely Islam. Well, even this, we learn, is a horrible simplification. To get to why, it's helpful to turn to some research done by Lydia Wilson for the Center for the Resolution of Intractable Conflict at Oxford University. Which is amazing. There is a Center for the Resolution of Intractable Conflict at Oxford University. I think that's cool. Anyway, so Lydia Wilson got to interview a number of ISIS prisoners and in the process discovered, surprise, surprise, that they were utterly clueless about Islam. They had no idea how to answer very basic questions about very basic aspects of Islamic faith. And this fact is is not an isolated thing unique to the research done by Wilson. If you start looking carefully at so-called religious fundamentalists, you soon discover that they are those least educated in matters of historical faith that they're supposed supposedly a part of. Ironically, it is called religious fundamentalism, not because it embraces the fundamentals of a religion, but because it ignores them. The same goes for right-wing weirdo churches like the infamous Westboro Baptist. Baptist Church, which is which is about as theologically literate as an English muffin. I'm not saying that fundamentalists are all stupid. That's not my point. My point is that whatever it is that they cling to is not primarily their religious roots, their religious tradition. Their ideology is from someplace else. And that ideology has hijacked them and their so-called religion. I've already spoken a bit of, about fundamentalism on this podcast back in episode 7, and what I didn't mention then was exactly this fact. Fundamentalists generally have no idea what they're doing, theologically speaking. They're not arguing about hermeneutics and textual criticism and atonement doctrines, or ta'weed, or jihad, or samsara, or some best way to understand the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, what they manifest is not a religious ideology but simply an ideology. It's like they're trying to apply quantum physics without ever having read a book on quantum physics, or trying to bake an upside-down cake without knowing what that even is, or even having a recipe for how to make it. This theological cluelessness is evident everywhere. More recent studies on ISIS show that what compels people, especially young men, to join is not, is not its profound devotion to the Quran and Um, and Islamic traditions, rather what was attractive to them was a promise of adventure, romance, power, purpose, and apocalyptic activism. Community is also vital for these 
these ISIS supporters. It may even be the most important element. ISIS provides a sense of belonging. In fact, it seems clear that the more well-schooled people are in a religion's history, which is not just about text, but is about tradition too and, and rituals, the less likely they are to resort to militancy of the fundamentalist kind. So the causal link between violence and religion, or religion and violence, is problematic. It's easier to label so-called religion as guilty by association than, than as the single motivating factor. The perpetrators of violent crimes, who also happen to have some kind of a link to religious perspective, will contaminate the picture of that religious perspective by means of the manifest mistake of their whole lives. Blaming religion for violence also overlooks a very obvious fact. Many of the worst crimes against humanity in history do not need religion as a motivator. Hitler, for instance, deviated entirely from the Christian tradition that he grew up with, and this is precisely what allowed him to lead Germany into murdering 10 million people. His brainchild, World War II, led to the deaths of around 60 million people, and this was all without the help of religion. It's staggering even to think about it. There are tons of examples uh, from elsewhere too. Under Stalin's rule, for instance, millions died. Under the rule of Mao Zedong, between 40 and 80 million people died, depending, of course, on, on who is doing the estimate. And all of this was done without the help of so-called religion. I'm not saying that these men instigated violence because they were irreligious either. That's a tactic used by apologists to buy into yet another form of scapegoating. My point is actually not one about belief or unbelief, but about the fact that the ideas and perspectives typically grouped under the label of religion are not the prime, primary instigator of violence. In my own country, South Africa, violence is horrendously commonplace, but South Africa still has profound connections with its religious history, and so the idea of coupling religion to violence are actually as rare as hen's teeth. The violence we have is fueled by all kinds of things, poverty, drug trafficking, intoxication, politics, but religion is not one of them. I'm not saying that there aren't problems with various religious groups, and I'm definitely not saying that various so-called religious ideologies don't have their pitfalls, but violence is certainly not something that can be simplistically attributed to religion. In fact, maybe we do need a Wikipedia link on secular violence to counterbalance that one on religious violence, or maybe we just need to understand the general conditions that would promote violence and stop trying to scapegoat religion. So again, is religion violent? Does violence stem from religion? The short answer would have to be no. What causes violence is complicated, but we know that it is never just a matter of the beliefs of those who commit violence. Messed up lives are involved, and life is a matter of everything in our material experience. The thing that gets me most, and I've, I've, I'm overstating the point here, is that this category of religion gets used by the media and by others to scapegoat religion, and that in turn ends up in some sense scapegoating those who adopt the stance of a particular religious tradition. If we're honest, it's not very different from any other form of, of intolerance. 
I'd argue that the various main historical religious traditions may be the most essential way of standing in the way of us having our ideological perspective being prescribed by states and governments and capitalism. Faith in some transcendent other is precisely the sort of thing that will help us to transcend our attachment to such things. What if faith may be the best antidote to ideological stupefaction? Because it is in faith that we find the way of Jesus, which insists on loving enemies and not repaying evil with evil. Which is why I come back to theology time and time again, especially a theology that centers on love in order to critique ideology, because it is not ultimately about who is out and who is in or who has power and who doesn't. It's about transcending our narrow categorizations of people, and it's about understanding and compassion and restorative justice and virtue. You get the idea. So that is it from me for now. Uh, Thank you so much again for listening. Uh, Take care, everyone.